afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the 44th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. These calls are held every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. My name is Scott Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we have a discussion about COVID-19 in Southeast Texas with Caitlin Bain, John Beard Jr., and Jacob Dick. We are streaming on YouTube Live. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster. You can also hear the COVID calls recorded as podcasts. Just go to soundcloud.com and connect to the COVID calls podcast. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for guests and for future topics. On Friday, we will talk about COVID-19, face masks, politics, and race with University of Maryland sociologist Rashawn Ray and Drexel University medical ethics professor Sharona Pearl. As of today, there are 4,413,597 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 4,292,139 cases yesterday. 1,405 1,961 of those are in the United States, up from 1,385,639 yesterday. There are now a total of 85,194 deaths reported in the United States, up from 83,648 deaths reported yesterday. As a way to bring humanity to these numbers, I've been reading a live story every day, and I'd like to continue that now. This is from the Dallas Morning News, April 28th. Headline, 17-year-old Lancaster girl among Dallas County's latest 10 coronavirus victims. A 17-year-old Lancaster girl died of complications related to the coronavirus, making her the youngest COVID-19 victim in Dallas County, officials announced. The teenager's death was among 10 reported as of April 28th in the county, bringing its total to 94 at that time. She died in a hospital's emergency department before she could be admitted, County Judge Clay Jenkins said. The teen, Jamila Dirian Emoni Barber, had no known underlying health conditions, a city spokeswoman said. Lancaster ISD officials said she would have been a senior at Lancaster High in the fall. During a school-wide video chat Tuesday, Principal Eleanor Webb gathered with students and teachers as they grieved together and shared memories of the teen. We needed each other, she said. Webb had planned to participate in the call with a stiff upper lip, she said, to be strong for her students. But when I got on there with my babies and I could hear in their voices and see in their faces how devastatingly hurt they were, we all became emotional, she said. Lancaster High lost a wonderful member of our family, she said. Webb said a teacher had reached out to Jamila late last week because she hadn't heard from her in a while. And that was out of character for someone as devoted to schoolwork as she was. Jamila spoke with her teacher on the phone Friday evening, apologizing for not having her work turned in and promising to get it finished once she was feeling better. The next day, she passed away, Webb said. The principal said Jamila was a well-rounded and well-liked student, just a delight to have around, Webb said. She was going to be inducted into the National Honor Society and was involved with JROTC, and Webb said she would have excelled in college or in the military after high school. Superintendent Elijah Granger said that the district is planning a celebration of Jamila's life and that he's been in touch with the city manager and the mayor about conducting a procession so the entire community can participate. 
The teenager's death was the first related to COVID-19 reported in Lancaster, officials said. At 17, Jamila is among the youngest victims of the coronavirus in Texas, though a spokesman for the State Department of Health Services said he could not say with certainty whether she was the youngest. Lancaster Mayor Clyde C. Hairston offered prayers for the girl's family in a written statement Tuesday. It is devastating to see the havoc this virus has put on our community, both young and old, he said. Jenkins, the Dallas County judge, said his heart goes out to Jamila's mother and the rest of her family. He said the death underscored what health experts have said about the virus, that though older people with underlying health conditions are more likely to have a bad outcome if they contract the virus, it can be dangerous to the young too. I'd like to introduce my guests today. Caitlin Bain is the local governor, government reporter for the Beaumont Enterprise in Southeast Texas. She covers cities, counties, and drainage districts for Jefferson, Hardin, and Orange counties with some overlap in Newton and Jasper counties. She's a Houston native and has been in Beaumont for over a year and a half. John Beard Jr. is a former city councilman representing District 5, Port Arthur. Born and raised in Port Arthur, he worked for 38 years in the petrochemical industry he now serves Port Arthur and Southeast Texas as a community advocate for economic development and environmental justice, leading the organization he founded, the Port Arthur Community Action Network. Jacob Dick is a business reporter for the Beaumont Enterprise Daily Newspaper. He covers retail, real estate, and industry in Southeast Texas with a focus on community relationships with oil and gas. Caitlin, Jacob, and John, I'd like to welcome you all to COVID Calls. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for having us. So for each one of these sessions, I've been starting by just asking people uh, how they're doing, where they are. So maybe we could start with that. Caitlin, how are things where you are? Things are okay. In true Southeast Texas fashion, I am watching the rainfall and the outdoors uh, curb flood. So that is currently how we are doing. We are timing. Um, and we are seeing of our spike in relation to opening things about two weeks ago. So. Okay. And how long have you been reporting from home? Oh, gosh. Um, Wednesday was two months. It was two months. Okay. John, let me, let me turn to you. You're, you're calling in from Port Arthur, I take it. How are things there? Well, I'm going to dovetail in with Caitlin by this old Texas saying that, uh, if you, if you don't like the weather in Texas, just wait a minute, it'll change. So while she's getting rain, I'm sunny and dry over here in Port Arthur, <laughs> distance of 16 miles. But uh, doing fine, family's doing well. Uh, we're managing as best we can, like everybody through it, and uh, trying to use good judgment and safe health practices for ourselves, but also intensely interested in what's going on outside of our door, in the community and with people. And, uh, it's very strange and challenging times we live in, and that's putting it real mild. Jacob, let me let me turn to you. Uh, you and Caitlin work in the same newspaper, but you're in different locations now for two months. How are things at your place? Oh, it's uh, it's been good. Um, I my uh, my wife actually works at the newspaper with me, so she's in the corner working on the page design right now, and I'm I'm over here. <laughs> uh, that's kind of how our office has been set up. So. <laughs> 
It's been all right. Have on on this call or within earshot a good proportion of people who have to deliver the news by six thirty tonight in in Beaumont. Then it seems like. Well, thank you all for making time for this discussion, um, Caitlin. I want to turn to you first and ask you if you would talk to us a little bit about you know, the reporting you've been doing and particularly the different approaches that you're seeing between City of Beaumont, City of Port Arthur, and then Jefferson County more more generally in terms of managing the uh, pandemic and then you know, what kind of tension that's brought about. So it's an interesting dynamic. Um, so Beaumont and Port Arthur are the two largest cities in Jefferson County, quick backstory. Um, and then we have several smaller communities um, in the rest of the county. And the public health departments, the Beaumont Public Health Department takes kind of Beaumont and the northern part of the county, and then the Port Arthur Health Department takes Port Arthur and the southern part of the county. So the Jefferson County Health Department um, doesn't actually officially have kind of jurisdiction over your traditional logging the number of cases and then tracking those back that some other county health departments that we've been watching do. So that's led to some interesting dynamics, a little bit of tension over, over the course of reporting. Um, at the beginning, before we had made a stay-at-home order, we had the county judges of Jefferson County and then five other counties come together to form this kind of coalition um, to respond to the pandemic. And they had been obviously having conversations with themselves about when to do a stay-at-home order, what sort of sorts of orders to do. Um, but then Beaumont and Port Arthur, which are the two largest cities, larger than some of the counties that are in this coalition, also were responsible for their citizens. Um, so we had a, a moment where the cities of, or the mayors of Beaumont and Port Arthur called out, isn't the right word, but were very honest that they thought that there would be a stay-at-home order two days prior and they felt kind of backed into a corner that they had to make their own because the counties didn't end up doing it. And so you have this weird dynamic of Jefferson County and the Jefferson County judge obviously is the highest elected official in our area, but the public health department specifically responsible for the health response in our area are the two largest cities. So it's been interesting to watch those kind of interplay and now we have the governor taking over essentially all emergency orders and so kind of a moot point at this point but it's been interesting to say the least so just to follow up for a second about that the governor's um role has not been too strong up to this point it's really been about this county judge and uh, uh the individual the individual cities uh, governor abbott's voice hasn't been too powerful there for uh, maybe about a month six weeks there it was pretty well up to the counties and then the cities with what they wanted to do. And so we had kind of a patchwork quilt of, we had the mayor of Harris, or mayor, the county judge of Harris County at one point put in a mask order. Everyone had to wear masks. We had Jefferson County that had a stay, or at one point it was just kind of like a, only one person from a household can go into a grocery store at a time and then a stay at home order. So it was very much a patchwork quilt until about two weeks ago yesterday, which was when the or tomorrow, excuse me, when the first emergency order from Governor Abbott that voided anything that was stricter in any of the other counties or cities went into effect. And so they can still make emergency orders like our county judges have done one that says um, you have to quarantine until you get your test results back. 
after being tested. That's not included in the in Governor Abbott's order, but it's also not stricter than Governor Abbott's order, so it's okay. But none of our cities, none of our counties can, for instance, say that they want to close salons if Governor Abbott's order allows salons to open. So it's been very much kind of state run the past two weeks, but prior to that, it was very is it fair to say that Jefferson County is open for business at this point? Depends on who you ask. <laughs> um, it definitely is more open for business than it has been. Um, salons, restaurants to 25%, but then we've seen some places like Beaumont start to allow like parking lot dining so people can really capitalize on that 25%. But even with like grocery stores, things like that, there still was a lot of traffic in the six weeks until things were open. I don't know that I would say everything really ever closed down mm -hmm. around here. Mm. John, let me turn to you and, and get uh, kind of the picture from Port Arthur, a place that I know that you know, literally street by street and pretty much house by house. Um, is it, did Port Arthur ever close? Is it, is it fully open again? And I guess the other question I wanna follow up with you on is, is What's it been like for you to try to do the kind of work you do in community action under these very, very difficult conditions? Well, that, that's putting it once again mildly. It's, it is difficult to, uh, you know, we're personally we're right in the middle of still helping with Harvey recovery uh, through a number of agencies, but because of some changes and things have happened, we're kind of shut down on that side. Uh, in terms of helping people because they can't get out to do their assessments and we can't get people over to assess them. And then because the uh, businesses and uh, our, I guess you say benefactors have been funding us are in a financial crunch because of this, uh, we haven't been able to get uh, our funding. It's been verbally committed, but we haven't seen anything yet. So we're still waiting there. But uh, Caitlin's right, you know, uh, it, it, it shut down is kind of a misnomer because I still see, it's a lot less traffic, but I still see quite a bit more traffic than you would have imagined if you were basically staying home. You know, we look all over the country, all over the world, streets are deserted. Well, they're fairly not, they're not well populated here, but they're far from deserted. Mm -hmm. I mean, we were well into this uh, experiment when the refineries finally decided to send all of these construction workers home or wherever they did. And that, you know, took a lot of the traffic off the streets. But uh, she's absolutely right. The biggest thing is all the confusion between who's an authority, who's making the call. Uh, it's, it's really a hodgepodge, and it's very reflective of, of what I feel is happening even on the national level. You get conflicting information. You see conflicting actions. You see uh, political expediency taking precedence over public health and welfare. And uh, Port Arthur's no different. People are doing the best they can. And uh, people are helping people. I think as, as well as we see some of the ugly side, we see the good side here with uh, a friend of mine, and I think Caitlin's met her, uh, Lucy Dennis. And Lucy's making masks. I think she's made close to either 800 mm -hmm. to 1,000 masks. And she's still got quite a bit of demand for this. And, uh, you know, there, there are people doing numerous things, people helping senior citizens and all and, and going about through the community and minimizing contact. But on the other hand, you see some people that are just going about as business as usual, and they want to get back to the old way of life. But uh, I think life's going to be permanently changed for a while. It's, you know, and if we don't address that and act accordingly, 
and be cognizant of the danger of this virus. It's not overreacting. I mean, you have to exercise an abundance of caution. But if you don't, uh, we're gonna have we're gonna have problems well into this year and the, probably the next. So Jacob, John mentioned the, um, the situation there, the timing of shutting down what was going on in the petrochemical industry. I think for people who are listening and may not have a sense of the scale of the petrochemical industry there in Southeast Texas, Jacob, would you mind just giving us a sort of overview of, of how important that industry is to that part of Texas? And then maybe talk a little bit about what you've learned in your reporting of what's going on inside the factories and, and how they've been coping with the disaster. Yeah. Um, so one thing I, I learned early on when I started here on the business beat, whether you're talking about retail, commercial real estate, uh, residential real estate, it, it almost all relates back to industry. Um, the From your, your city managers to your, your people putting in subdivisions, they all pay attention to the growth of their city based on what the next project is. Um, and so, I, I mean, uh, early year, I think in May, we just had a, the last of three hotels open in Beaumont. Um, they were all extended stay hotels that were built based on, you know, the idea that construction workers um, were coming here. And so that's that's kind of been the way my beat has played out during um, coronavirus is uh, it, it's a little bit of, of both. You have to find the way that uh, industry being affected is going to impact your, your local economy. Um, and so depending on which uh, company you work for, which plant you're in, that's looked differently. Most of the, the companies I've talked to from like ExxonMobil to, um, to uh, Motiva to, to Tal uh, here and there in Port Arthur, they've said that they've tried to do staggered shifts where they're trying to have as few people and as possible that are necessary. Um, now, I've gotten notes from uh, workers there that have said the reality of that uh, isn't as close to what the companies have been saying and that uh, distancing has been an issue. And we've even had a few cases of outbreaks um, at certain work sites uh, where, where workers have said that, that people had been there for weeks that had tested positive um, before any of them had, had been told. And I mean, this is a, a kind of a, a question asking you to say a little bit about how you do your, your reporting. It's not easy to report on the oil and gas industry. It's not like they just invite you inside for a cup of coffee and, and let you read their, their reports. Um, so how confident are you about the kind of information you've been getting from those sources as to what's happening inside the plant? Um, yeah, that's kind of the issue. I, I take what they tell me, and if um, I mean, obviously, most of them can't talk on on the record, um, not if they want to keep their jobs. But I take what they tell me, and I try to find the same information elsewhere. But usually, the way it turns out is if I don't have a document or I don't have uh, a public agenda item or something that I can take to the company and say, "Hey, I'm going to write about this. Do you want to talk to me about it?" They usually don't. Um, and that's just kind of the way it is. You said something a minute ago, very interesting about the, these extended stay hotels uh, that are being built, presumably because uh, the, the refineries are growing. I mean, there's a construction there and, and the sector has been growing, but now mm -hmm. the price of oil has dropped through the floor. Uh, what's the general picture there? Is it still go, go 
and and that um, price accrued is is just a shiny object for the moment and still the sense is that the, the sector underlying is really strong or what what should we be understanding about the economy there so that was one of the things that I wanted to try to find out as soon as possible because there are lots of uh, there's at least three of what you would call mega projects going on right now in the billions of dollars to which are liquid natural gas export terminals um, and so far those companies have said those are still on track uh, the Golden Pass LNG that's a uh, joint venture between uh, Cutter Petroleum and Exxon Mobil. They had already moved back their completion date uh, with FERC uh, a couple of months before COVID even hit. So they're still chugging along to 2025. And then a couple of weeks ago, uh, Sempra Energy announced that they were moving back their final investment decision for the Port Arthur LNG and Sabine Pass. Um, but they still think that they're gonna, gonna have plenty of private equity capital to make that uh, come together. So as far as the mega projects, they still seem on track um, with, with construction. Like we've got things from, from Pipeline at Sunoco right now, they're uh, trying to finish one of the legs of what will be the Keystone Pipeline mm. that will connect here. And uh, that's also where one of the outbreaks took place at the Sunoco project. But uh, I was talking to our local CVB director here just about hotel occupancy. And he was like, it, it is those construction workers and the extended stay that has uh, kept our, our hotel tax uh, revenues afloat. Because apparently he had talked to his counterpart in Austin, who said at the beginning of April, downtown Austin hotel occupancy was at 3% and we were at 30. And it's already started to tick up from there. Mm -hmm. So. So were, they, were those construction workers always deemed quote unquote essential workers in Texas? In other words, they didn't ever have to stop? Um, that, that is a good question. I think it would depend on which contracting outfit mm. that they were a part of. But uh, as far as I've been told, yeah, most of the um, construction workers, they, they were still on the job in April whenever mm -hmm. we um, had reports of one of our, our first outbreaks in a plant. So they're, they're, if I've got you right, then there's certain kinds of social distancing was required, but in general, we should understand that the oil industry has, has kept going throughout this entire, this entire crisis. Right. Right. Um, Caitlin, just to pick back up on some of your reporting, you were talking about what's going on inside the county, but there's also this like multi-county compact going on there in Southeast Texas. Um, can you explain that to us and how well that's, that's worked. I mean, one thing we've learned um, in this disaster, and I had Don Kettle on, who's a professor at the University of Texas a couple of weeks ago, and he was talking about federalism and this sort of battle between the states and the federal government right now, but actually it's, at, it's broken down even within states and sometimes counties across state lines are working together. So what's the story there? Yeah, and so I just wanted to look up, my geography is terrible, but see how far the furthest county working with us in this task force is Tyler County. My GPS says it's an hour and a half. I thought it would be further, but maybe that's towards the middle of the county. That's close oh. in Texas, hour and a half. That's just, <laughs> but for most people listening to this, that's pretty far away. Yeah, yeah. So whenever they started responding, um, it was March 11th, I wanna say. Um, five counties, it's Jefferson, Hardin, Orange, Jasper, and Newton decided that they were going to come together to form this kind of task force coalition 
to fight the pandemic. Later on, Tyler County was added and Tyler and Jasper County kind of do a lot of work together. So that was a natural add when we were already as far up as Jasper. Um, and the idea there was that they end up working together a lot for hurricane preparedness, hurricane response. Most of those counties are currently a part of the recently formed flood coalition. Um, so they, they just have this history of working together on a lot. It is natural for drainage because obviously the water has to come down somewhere. Um, so I think they get used to working in these partnerships and they said, quite frankly, we're used to this. We work well together. Why would we not band together for this as well? Um, but one of the issues in the beginning was obviously the availability of test kits. And I know a lot of reporting was done on that nationwide. And Jefferson County had some test kits, but most of the other counties in our area did not. And so it ended up being a way to kind of help test those residents. And I think the the thought there was we are so um reliant on each other because the Jefferson County the healthcare system in Jefferson County really is the healthcare system for most of the area that's in this coalition and so it would behoove us to test these people regardless of if we're the only county that has test kits um so that ended up so that Jefferson County's auditor's office was keeping track of the cost of kits and the cost of contracting nurses and whatever it is um, and then it was split up based on the county's population um, as to who would pay what but we got into this kind of weird um, situation for lack of a better word because we had like Newton County which had two cases for the majority of the time it's now up to four but so that is very, very few, a very different situation, very spread out, not very many people in that county. Then we have Jefferson County, which has more than 300 cases now. And so trying to work together and get together to talk about what emergency orders that they're gonna pass before Governor Abbott passed his and come with united messaging from an outsider looking in seemed to be at least a little bit of a challenge mm -hmm. Determine, well, what what is best for everyone when we have such different scenarios? And so it made sense from a testing point of view, but from kind of a, well, does does Newton County really need to do a stay-at-home order when the people live so far apart anyway, sort of thing? So it was an interesting back and forth. They're officially disbanding tomorrow. <laughs> um, they came to us. Uh, about a week and a half ago said that they'd set this timeline for disbanding. They'd set this timeline for um, finishing their kind of united testing effort that testing was now available enough so that counties and cities and private providers could then do testing on their own. Um, but it also is, well, the, the governor has taken most of the emergency order power and his decisions are being informed by the um, limits that he said the amount of people he wants to have tested and so you kind of get to this weighing of the 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 cost and the benefit well mm -hmm. can we just hand testing back to these areas that may or may not have as strong of a system but do they need a strong of a system and who is this information informing so the epidemiology um projections i've looked at indicate that we're looking um at what they call it, sometimes we call it a second wave, although sometimes I talk it 
about it as wavelets too, that might not be as clear as a one second wave, but suffice it to say, the sort of alarm bell is gonna ring again. And it, it did well, this, yesterday. <laughs> okay, okay. Cause you've been open back for two weeks. So presumably you have cases again. Yesterday was our largest single day increase since April 20th. We had 28 new cases yesterday. We had been down to um, 23 was our highest since then, but mostly it was around 10 every day until yesterday it kicked back up again. The majority of that was Beaumont. They had 17, but still having 11 other cases spread out throughout this area. And I actually just was texting the mayor of Beaumont five minutes before we started this, um, that they feel comfortable saying that we are now at the point that most of the cases that we are having now, the spike is the result of, we are now two weeks out from first reopening things. I wanna follow up with you in a minute, this sort of issue about the relationship of Beaumont to this, these other counties too, because I wonder, you know, that this, there's been a, a kind of a rhetoric in, across the United States that it was really only urban places that were going to be hit by this and rural places need to, didn't need to, to think about it much. You're telling me something that seems kind of like that. I mean, some of these counties are very lightly populated compared to Jefferson County. Um, and yet, if you take note, if, <laughs> if you allow disparate precautions in all these different counties, you can end up unprepared exactly in the moment when you need to have some sort of protocols that make sense. And that is a very interesting point. I, I would say Port Arthur is kind of a different situation altogether because of the lack of testing that has been centered on that area. But if you look at Hardin County, which is a, a generally pretty rural county, and the city of Port Arthur, they have um, about-ish the same number of residents, give or take a thousand. Hardin County's two main cities had a much higher a positive rate per capita than the city of Port Arthur did because according to their epidemiologists, they had a few cases in very highly popu populated areas for stay at home orders went in place. Their cases were at like a Walmart, a Walmart worker was one of their first cases. Um, so I, I would say yes, but also we have these kind of outlying examples here where you have a county that is the almost the same population as this urban area, but they have more cases per capita. Right. Remind people that you're listening to COVID calls. I'm talking with Jacob Dick and Caitlin Bain and John Beard about the situation of COVID-19 in Southeast Texas. John, let me come back to you. And um, you were talking a minute ago about the way that the pandemic is affecting hurricane relief. And I think to some people who may not know the situation there very well, that may seem like a, an unexpected thing to hear but maybe I could get you to talk a little bit about how Hurricane Harvey is still part of everyday life there in Port Arthur and, and what it's meant to try to deal with the pandemic and the ongoing recovery of that 2017 hurricane at the same time. 
Yeah, be glad to. Uh, most certainly, uh, there are a number of people, or what I'd like to say to your listeners is that uh, there's still quite a number of people whose homes haven't even been gutted out since the storm. There are those who are living in insufficient quarters, you know. They only have outer walls to their home. There's no inside sheetrock or roofing or any of that. They lack appliances. They've gotten a few meager things to help them get by. But uh, my organization, as a member of the Southeast Texas Recovery Group, uh, last time we met, which I think was in March, we had over 800 cases, and I would guesstimate at least 40% of those are in Port Arthur alone, 800 cases or families that had not been serviced. And that list somehow keeps increasing by a few more that people that apply and say, hey, I need help or I need aid. So there's a lot of things that are in terms of their housekeeping that they need. Like I said, a lot of them lost appliances, uh, home furniture, uh, household essentials. And thanks to uh, the generosity of one of our, I guess you'd say, uh, local industry, we've been able to help meet that need. Uh, right now I have about 50 clients, uh, 30 to 50 clients that I'm waiting on funding to try to help. And uh, in some talks the other day with some of my cohorts in this same arena, we uh, the things are kind of real slow and shut down. Nobody's doing a lot. But I want to bounce back on something that Caitlin said about those numbers dealing with Hardin County and Port Arthur and also this regionalism concept. You know, some of us who've been around politically and socially in Port Arthur like I have, we, we get a little bit uh, of heartburn when you say that word regionalism because we've always found that the needs of the region often trump the needs of Port Arthur. Looking at the drainage she talked about, uh, we're at the end of the line. We're right here almost at the Gulf of Mexico at the confluence of the Sabine and the Natchez Rivers. And everybody knows what happened with Harvey. You know, we got a lot of that water. But uh, earlier this year, there was a meeting that the city had regarding drainage and some of their drainage experts and uh, I guess you say contracted hired experts said that their biggest issue was preventing the water outside of Port Arthur from coming mm -hmm. into Port Arthur. Mm -hmm. But yet there's this focus on what we're going to do to keep the region from flooding when you're not talking about what's happening downstream. Until you address what's happening downstream, all you're going to be doing on a regional basis is channeling the water to and through us. And because we have a minority community, largely made up of Hispanics, uh, African-Americans and others, and, and maybe not even 15% white, uh, we somehow seem to get pushed to the foreground. And I think the background really, and I think that's the same happening here with the uh, COVID testing. One of the statistics I find that I hear very little about from, well, I heard it from Beaumont recently, Kate can probably attest to, is the demographic breakdown. I I'm mean- Bringing that up right now. <laughs> right, you know, that that's, that's the problem I have. You know, we don't hear anything in Port Arthur, but yet with a high, with almost 50% or 40 to 50% of the people in Port Arthur being African-American mm -hmm. and at least 60% of those people being, I guess you would say, uh, economically disadvantaged and over 80% of those not having any form of medical insurance or care or coverage and a substantial number that have to use the free clinics we have in the area, which you only have two to service the entire city of Port Arthur, 52 to 55,000, uh, that's a crisis in the making, if you ask me, if we have an outbreak. But what works for us is, uh, and as you talk with Jacob about industry, a lot of the people in Port Arthur 
don't work in industry. So they don't have that exposure. They're not in those large groups and masses that you see going to work, riding the buses across to Chenier and these other points and being involved. So they don't have that contact. Their contact is mostly confined to their communities or their home. Their community means the apartment complex and the people they interface with there are their homes. And those people don't interface much outside with the general population, except when they go to the grocery store or somewhere like that. So yes, while it seems that our numbers are not as high, they are still substantial. And there's a great deal of risk because of the predisposition and all uh, that they have with health issues and the like. So we constantly, <laughs> excuse me, have a battle to wage in, in, uh, on that and trying to make sure that our people get what's needed. And unfortunately, I just don't think that's happening. That regional concept isn't, isn't working for us either. Can I draw you out just a little bit on that, this issue of the predisposition? Because I talked a few weeks ago with some folks from, from uh, Reserve, Louisiana, so-called Cancer Alley area, Louisiana. These are uh, what we sometimes call fence line communities, people that right. lived there before the petrochemical plants moved in. Some of them traced their families back many generations, even back into slavery and through the Jim Crow period. And then the factories came later, but they're the ones that breathe the air, they're the ones that drink the water, they're the ones that receive the pollution from, uh, from those factories. So when you talk about predispositions and chronic health conditions there in Port Arthur, are we talking about a similar kind of situation there? I mean, people living at that fence line who have chronic disease, can you say a little bit more about those concerns in your community? Sure, uh, those conditions are there, but they're also heightened because of the proximity to the fence line and the pollution that we have. Take, for instance, the west side. And I think you all, you are, are children, our reporters have, have toured the area. I don't know if you have yet, Scott, but on your next trip down, I'm gonna show you what we're faced with. Uh, in an area that had over 10,000 people, now probably has maybe 4,000 to 4,500 4 people tops. This area is surrounded to the north by the largest refinery in the country, Motiva to its west by Valero, which is another large refiner, to the south by German pellets and Oxbow calcinining, Oxbow being one of the largest industrial polluters of sulfur dioxides and particulate matter in all of Southeast Texas. And that's including the major refineries. And then you also have you know, the, the, the port and other agencies. And then you have Total to our east. So we're virtually surrounded by these refineries. And it has caused an exacerbation of a lot of the health issues that people have here. Port Arthur was found in a study that was done by EPA in 2010 to have twice the state and national averages of some forms of cancer, heart, lung, and kidney disease. And kidney disease strikes close in my household because my oldest son had to have a kidney transplant. And several members of my household suffer from allergies, and those allergies are constant and recurring. And what's so funny about it, when we take family trips or outings out of state and out of the area to Appalachia or to Colorado or West or cleaner places that don't have refineries, within a day of the arriving there, all of those problems, like the headaches, the stuffy nose or runny nose, itchy, watery eyes, all of that clears up mm -hmm. like you flick a switch. But within mere hours of coming back home and being here, all of those things miraculously return. 
So it's something in the air, so to speak. And this virus that affects the respiratory system or attacks it only exacerbates those problems. And, and you know, one of the other things, too, because of our lack of working and circulating among the general population of people, which would en enhance the opportunities to uh, get this disease, we, uh, we, we, we don't have, you know, we don't, we don't get that kind of interface, but at the same time, we're more predisposed to them because of the, you know, conditions we already have. And many of those people probably think just as they have gotten used to the runny nose and itchy eyes and constantly having a cold or a cough, thinking, well, that's just normal. You know, I, I have that all the time. They may have COVID and don't even know it. And mm -hmm. because of a lack of testing, we won't know if it's COVID or not, regardless of whether they're false positives or anything. There's not enough testing done to be certain. So it, this, is a, this is a serious dilemma. And if there's a massive outbreak and a lot of people start dying from this, uh, if you without the demographic information, without knowing where those hotspots actually are, you're not going to be able to find out what's the causality behind all of it and the relationship with industry. Jacob, let me come to you um, back to this issue about the what's going on at the at the plants. And um, you know, one of the stories that I've been talking a lot about. I'm in the Northeast, and and one of the things I've been talking a lot about here is the uh, visible environmental impact of a lot of it is sort of lack of driving, but also uh, factories uh, shuttering or slowing down production. I, and I wanted to ask you earlier, I mean, is the production actually slowed considerably there enough that you've seen any sort of envir environmental impacts at all? Or that's not the right way to think about what's going on there in Southeast Texas? Um, yeah, so I, I don't think that there's been much evidence that I could see that there's been like a significant change in, in our air quality, at least here. Mm. Um, but I, I will see. I will say it depends on which sector you're, you're looking at. I have been trying to keep an eye out, um, especially we have Valero and, and Motiva here. I, I was wondering if um, any of the gas price situation would lead to mm. um, a, a layoff or, or a shutdown of any of the refining lines. And so far, um, I've seen it hasn't. Uh, some of the chemical plants, um, I also was wondering if, if maybe some of... Uh, the, the lack in, in trade and uh, consumer products right now would lead to a, a plastics reduction. And I also haven't seen that uh, as well, although they, they have kind of uh, taken more precautions and I think had more, uh, I won't say furloughs, but they're the ones that have said that are staggering their uh, shifts the most. Um, so as far as that goes, I think we're still seeing the same amount of work in, in production as we would normally see. It's just being done at down different timelines. It seems like what you're describing, I mean, I don't want to be too simple-minded about this, but I mean, it seems like the petrochemical industry itself is immune to COVID-19. Um, yeah, that, that's, uh, that would be an inter, that would be something uh, that I don't know that I would be able to answer what one thing I have heard from economists and people that uh, specifically look at this area is that we're kind of on a staggered timeline uh, especially based on like the feedstocks and the things that they purchase uh, earlier in the year at different prices 
um, if there was a significant gut in the market, um, it might not hit us as, as quickly as say it would hit the Permian. We've seen like discovery companies go uh, bankrupt about two months ago. I see. That's that's one of the things that people are not, you know, thinking about how complicated that industry is. I mean, where you are, you're really in the refining end of things. And I guess the sort of like the transportation point, as you were talking about these new LNG billion dollar projects that are, are moving ahead, even though maybe discovery is slowing down in other parts of the in other parts of the state. Jacob, I want to stick with you for a second because I know you're also covering hospitality. And right before we started the call today, you said uh, that you may be going out to actually do some reporting about uh, the casinos, uh, not in Texas, but in Louisiana. Can you can you I, talk a little? I can. I mean, the life of a reporter right now to me is an un, is an impossible thing to imagine. So take us inside this this assignment. Right. So. Um, on Friday, the uh, South the casinos and resorts in southwestern Louisiana and Lake Charles, which is um, not too far across the border from our coverage area, um, there's a lot of people in uh, Orange County in, in Orange, Texas, that probably frequent there, and probably more than a few that work over there. Uh, and so they're, they're reopening, and then casinos will be open on Monday. And so <laughs> I, I guess it fell to me to go over there. They want me to try to make a trip over there Friday to see um, how many people will be going out there and maybe staying the weekend to wait until um, Monday. And I've already talked to a few people today that have booked their uh, reservations for Monday and Tuesday. So they want to be there uh, as soon as the, the table's open. Wow. So how are you going to gear up for the gambling floor in to be ready to do this kind of reporting in a safe way. <laughs> um, so uh, distance is a must. I've got an N95 mask that uh, my editor gave me. And I, I've kind of already been through this because on the, the first um, weekend, the businesses were supposed to be open. One of our local racetracks opened up here and they had about four or 500 people. They gathered most of them. We're from out of state, Louisiana. I talked to some people that were from Mississippi, and this was the uh, closest racetrack for them to race at. Um, so I, I've kind of uh, been through this a little bit in the last couple of weeks. Were they keeping social distance at the I track? Was, uh, I was the only one wearing a mask. And, uh, you know, people were shaking hands, hanging out. Um, it, was a, it, was, it was like there was no coronavirus. But, uh, I mean, from a I will, public, yeah, I will go say, ahead. I will say, I did talk to people that were like, "This isn't, this is important." It, what what we did during the lockdown, uh, that was necessary. But I'm glad that we're back. Okay. And so that was kind of an an interesting idea. Um, like they felt like they were still being cautious and, and they were being smart about it, and yet they weren't taking precautions that are normally recommended <laughs> yeah that's it. i mean it's so complicated and i think it's been as has as you've all said in different ways the the mismatch in information that's come from the who to the president of the united states to the governor of your state versus the governor of louisiana um who are from different parties to down to your more local officials I think there are lots of people of goodwill who've tried to do their best, who've gotten conflicting information and just thrown their hands up in many cases. I don't know about this racetrack example. That seems a little extreme to me, but 
but I do think it's been hard um, for a lot of people to know. Um, I mean, I'm living in New Jersey and even here, you know, face mask is recommended, but I see wide diversity in the use of it. Uh, my favorite being a guy the other day I saw walking down the street, he was wearing gloves, but he was smoking. So no mask. I mean, I think people are just, you know, they've got so much conflicting information and they're also trying to live their lives. But um, I guess I want to follow up with each of you because just to put this in a wider frame, people may not know, we talked about Hurricane Harvey. I mean, you're living in a part of Texas that to me seems like since the fall of 2017 has just been an ongoing set of disasters. I mean, you had the hurricane, you had the tropical storm Imelda, you had the uh, German pellets um, factory fire, you had the Port Neches explosion in November of 2019, and now you have COVID. What's it like to, to live in a place and try to report in a place and try to represent the interests of the disadvantaged in a place where you don't seem to get a break? Caitlin, could you speak to that first? I just wanna hear from all of you on this. Yeah. Um, one of the things that stuck out to me whenever I first started reporting about coronavirus, I was checking in with um, one of our GLO officials, Texas General Land Office, who is a part of one of the programs to rebuild Harvey Homes. And they had code inspectors going via FaceTime with builders so that they could still kind of sign off the homes once they were constructed so that people could have new homes, but they had to figure out how to do it differently because of coronavirus. And today in a staff meeting, we were talking about, well, we need to start, start talking about hurricane season again, because what happens if people are evacuating and going to a different state and bringing whatever there and then bringing whatever back? And how do you have a shelter during coronavirus? And so it just reporting seems to be forever this preparation of, okay, well now how do we do? It's like that game you used to play when you were little, the pattern game, your friend would do like clap your hands and you would clap back and then they would clap snap, but you had to clap snap back and you had to keep remembering and adding something on each time. Mm. And that's kind of how it feels reporting with people. Okay, now how do we recover from all of this plus this new one? Mm. Um, but I think it also makes people more resilient. One of the things that I love about living in this area is people are forced into it, but it means we just continually see people coming together and trying to help. And they may be from different parties and they may not wear masks, but this continued feeling of, well, we got through it last time and so we'll get through it this time. And so maybe that may not be the smartest plan to continue living in a certain area, but just kind of this built resilience is like, well, we're gonna do it again. John, let me ask you the same question you did point out earlier that you saw a lot of people helping and I know that you're always in the middle of that sort of orchestrating that there in your community but do you worry I mean this is an ongoing disaster since since 2017 what's the what's the toll my mindset on on a lot of this has always been based on my background in the petrochemical industry uh and, and working in emergency management of always trying to look ahead and see what the possibilities are or what 
could potentially happen or, or, or how can we address what's coming up the road? And, and I'm glad you brought that up about hurricane season because we need to be making preparations for whatever we do if there's an evacuation, as you said, or even a shelter in place here, or even another Harvey, God forbid, where people are going to be in a distressed situation, lack of access to getting around town, lack of access to food, lack of access to virtually everything for an unlimited amount of time, for, for an indefinite amount of time, rather. And, and that means that there's some changes that we're going to have to make in our thinking and our perspective. You know, Jacob said it well, you know, well, we're glad this is all over with. Now let's get back to normal. There ain't no such thing as normal anymore. That, that, that's just, that's a, that's a foreign concept given this virus. And given life in Southeast Texas, we constantly have to make those adjustments. And while, yes, we are resilient, we need to be more mindful of how it affects each other. And, and when I say that, I go back to talking about the TPC fire and explosion. Port Arthur was affected, but then when you talked about Port Arthur, then you got derisive laughter or even put-downs because the people who only thought they were affected were the people in the vicinity of Rose and Port Natures near the plant. And that's not so. You know, you've seen the pictures I showed you. The plume from that fire passed within mere blocks of my house. It passed right over the city. So how can you say that people weren't affected, and I hear from people that are, but yet you minimize it because it may not be where you live or people that you know or people that look like you. So that, those are some challenges, and we have to change our thinking and adapt and adjust to those conditions and be cognizant of them, not hide and run away from them or minimize them so that we're going to make sure that all the people, especially the most vulnerable of us and the ones who least have the ability to be able to address their concerns and issues, that make sure that they too are represented. One hat doesn't fit all heads and one pair of shoes don't fit all feet. We have to make sure that we tailor this to the populations that need help while at the same time addressing those populations that can pretty much, you know, make it on their own, but still give them the help that they need. John, are you seeing more people becoming politically active in this moment? Right now, the, 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 the questions are always out there and the concerns. But as I've told others, even you know, recently on social media, that you talking about it or Facebooking about it or crying and griping about it or even praying about it isn't enough. Until you impress your leadership with the needs that you have or what you see, you know, I ask all the time, who's your counselor? Do you call your counselor? Do you know how to get in touch with them? Who is, or, you know, how do you, can, do you know how to get in touch with the mayor or the county judge or your state and local representatives or your federal officials? If you don't know how to touch, get in touch with them, if you've never communicated with them, how can you be heard? You need to be heard. Regardless of how you feel or what you think about it or whether you're articulate or inarticulate, you need to be heard. And until you're heard and enough of those voices are heard, that squeaky wheel ain't going to get the grease. Mm -hmm. So we got, to, we got to get in here and actually work on it. But I, I don't see anything changing. I think maybe there'll be more of a pulling back from it. Uh, the tale is going to be that this last city election, which should have taken place last Saturday, was postponed till November to the general. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. And I think that's going to be a great indicator, depending on what's going to happen and all of that and the big fight that's going on nationally as well as in Texas and here to let people vote by mail, how that's going to all play out. Because some people say, well, you stood in line for groceries, you can stand in line to vote. But uh, how do you observe six feet when you're in the voting line mm-hmm. and in the polling place with 10 people or less and do this at the same time? If you want everybody to vote, why don't you give unfettered access? You can still have the protocols in place to make sure that the votes are true and correct. But how do you do that? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a mixed bag, Scott. We, we've got to, we got to figure our way out of this, but we still need to be engaged. And that's kind of the challenge I've got right now is talking about what's relevant and right before us, but at the same time, tapping you on the shoulder, say, hey, don't forget, hurricane season's coming. Don't forget, there's possibly an election. Don't forget all of the other little things. School will be starting up again soon. Mm-hmm. What about people going to college? How about transportation? You know, all of those things. We have to, we have to still be cognizant and still be engaged. And I think that's really the greatest challenge is keeping people focused and engaged. Jacob, uh, that same question to you. I mean, do you see any any changes in the broader, you know, looking down the road a little bit in the political economy of the region, the politics of the region, the, the way that the companies are addressed, the expectations maybe on, on industry? John John's mentioned that expectation that industry will kind of rise to the challenge a little bit and and help communities to a certain degree? I don't know. I mean, how should we be thinking about the political implications there of this era of disasters for Southeast Texas? Um, So I'll I'll try to, I feel like there's two different ways to think about that. Um, So I've only been here since uh, January of last year, but early on I got introduced into there is this recovery cycle mentality. Like when I first got here, I talked to people that were opening businesses that have been shut down since Rita. And I've been talking to people trying to put to put their lives back together after Harvey. What and year was one, Rita? Uh, what was seven years seven. ago? Okay. Yeah. It's so been a while. Seven. Okay. I, I didn't mean to cut you off. But I mean, just so <laughs> listeners understand, we're talking about a region yeah. where people are still recovering from a hurricane that was almost 10 years ago. Sometimes I feel like I need charts and maps and things because there's a large <laughs> timeline of how this area is. Yeah, right. let, me, let, me put, let me interject in there. That Please. was 2005. Thank so you. We're yes. going back almost 15 years now. Right, right, right. Okay. Thanks, Thanks, Thanks John. John. Yeah. Go ahead, <laughs> uh, Jacob. Right. So, um, and, and through all that, like you, you hear people say, like, I, I love this area and you, you feel the resilience, the resiliency in the community. They've um, built here and how they help each other. This this last round, like um, I know there's a lot of reporting on the issues that have been with SBA loans and how a lot of people uh, didn't get them, but I was talking to people that work with uh, chambers of commerce here and local business people that said SBA was not even an option for us because we already have so much debt. Um, and even beyond that, like in a more widespread context, a lot of people that could open their restaurants didn't because they said their help moved away or they either had to take care of family, um, they had to stay with family elsewhere. So they're, we're seeing displacement and we're seeing the toll of what people have had to accumulate um, recovering from all of this. And so the, the question of whether industry helps with that, whether industry helps with the healing process, in some ways it does. They give a lot of charity here, um, millions of dollars after hurricanes and, and we're almost up to 
a couple million uh, just in the last month from industry donations here for COVID. But the issue is there, there already wasn't enough local infrastructure. Like whenever these big mega projects come in, they always have a hiring fair. They always have a small business fair to try to get the infrastructure ready for them. And they always say, we need more people, we need more workers, we need more contractors. Um, if you have a gutting out of these businesses and these people that have lived here because they just can't keep up with the strain of the disaster and, and the constant burden, industry, that's gonna be less attractive uh, for them to invest here. Um, and I, I just don't know how you square that. Hmm. Can I add something? Yes, please. please. Um, Sorry. You're fine. Uh, Jacob and I talked about this. I was talking with the appraiser, the Jefferson County appraiser a couple weeks ago, because um, we had our appraised value sent out then. Um, and I asked, well, we've, we've obviously had a Melba, we have TPC, how have our home values across the county changed this year? She's like, well, they went up again. Like, how can that be? Because industry, this is how she explained it to me. Because industry is so strong and continues bringing people into the area, people get it hit, stuck in their head. They want to live in this area, so they pay more for the homes that have been renovated. That's, I don't have to move into a Harvey or an Imelda or a TPC damaged house, so I will pay more to live in this area for a home that has already been renovated just so I don't have to do it myself. And so it's not like maybe we should think about. Should we move to this place that I have to pick the home based on one that's fixed? It's instead it's driving up home value. And so that has been crazy to me in watching it. That that seems like they shouldn't go together. That's that's amazing to think about the, the sort of micro economy and people trying to understand what's going on in a region like that that has experienced these yeah. sort of as you said, sort of cycles of disaster and recovery. And the kind of havoc that it plays with the housing market and with you know local industry, food industry, and these various different different things. Um, it's just not like the rest of the country. I mean, this no. is why we have to have these conversations in these very uniquely economically evolved area areas. And of course, the, that means that you're experiencing COVID nineteen differently from other parts of the country as well. John, you wanted to come in on that? Yeah, Scott. Let me say something about that. You, you're exactly right. This area because of the overall dependence of not just this country, but the world on oil, is very heavily insulated from a lot of the shocks. Yes, we had a market shock, but take, take, think about this. If it were not for the Saudis and Russia creating this glut in the oil market, we wouldn't have had the oil the crash in terms of the per barrel price. But we also would not have had the, hard, the large inventories which means as we begin to reopen the, the, the economy and the economic activities picks up, that's going to be a buffer to rising prices. And it's also going to provide the oil that's needed, the supplies that are needed in order to get running again. But uh, petrochemical industry started here in Southeast Texas, uh, basically 1898-1902. Through all of that, you've had world wars, Korea, Vietnam, the Great Depression, the Great Recession, you've had the Gulf Wars, you've had all of this. And where have they gone? They're still right here. They went through it all. And during the late, during the 80s, the industry changed to where they wanted to run lean and mean, go to minimum man staffing, which means we're going to have just enough people to do the job we need to do safely. If we need any more, 
we'll hire them on a contract basis, bring them in one day, send them out the next. And that's what led to that market. But take, for instance, Motiva's predecessor company, which was Texaco, and Gulf Oil's predecessor, uh, the Gulf Oil is, was now, is now Valero. Between the two of them, there were over 10,000 employees at one time. Now there's probably less than 5,000 between both of them. So the industry is a lot different, and it's built to go through these times. Yes, you know, ExxonMobil talked about losing $600 million in a quarter, but last year alone, Motiva made $111 billion. And I don't know what Exxon did, but it probably wasn't far off. Mm. And that's, you know, that just simply speaks to the fact that they're not going to get as big a return on the investment uh, you know, to their stock and shareholders. But it's not going to stop them from doing these expansions. That has already been paid for. That's, you know, in the case of the larger companies. But in the ones that need private equity, yeah, they got to raise money. Golden Pass, that was done out of pocket back when Exxon was rolling in money. So, they, and most of the companies are because they were in a, a pretty high, high time right now, a strong climate. Now the climate's not so strong, but they have built hedges against that. So this area is pretty resilient, uh, but... You know, we've got to meet the challenge. We've got to meet it properly. And we can't look at it the same way we always had because just like with TPC, I've said, this is a game changer. And we're going to have to look at the way we deal with each other in the public and do things because this virus is probably not going to be the first of this kind nor the last. We are up on time. John, I just want to give you a, a second. If we want to learn more about the Port Arthur Community Action Network, can you tell us where we can find that information? Uh, that's a good one. Uh, we don't have a, a web or uh, presence right now, but we do have somewhat of a social media presence on our Facebook page, Environmental Justice. Uh, there are also several Port Arthur pages, Port Arthur Politics 1, 2, and 3, uh, Port Arthur Proud, and several others in social media there that you can get a lot of information, a lot of what I put out is there. And you can also go to my own personal page. Uh, as an organization, we are kind of very close-knit and close to the vest. We try to move and do our business quietly in the community, but still be able to make a difference. And uh, I think that serves us well, but we still put our feelers out there, have community meetings and all. And that's been a little difficult because there's several critical issues now, but uh, you just keep your ears peeled. You'll hear from us. Yeah, that's great. Thank you, John. And, and um, Jacob and, and Caitlin, as we're closing down, um, I should have let you I should have bragged on you at the beginning, but let's make sure that we say at the end, your newspaper, the Beaumont Enterprise, just won a whole a whole bunch of awards, right? Can you, can you, I'm gonna give you license to brag a little bit here for a second, and I think your editor may be listening. What did you, what happened? Did you well, run away with all the prizes? Ronnie, our editor, came in and built a phenomenal team, is mm -hmm. in my opinion what happened. Um, we won a lot of individual awards, but then we won um, Newspaper of the Year in our category, and then we won a, a brand new award in its first year, Newsroom of the Year, in our category. Um, so then a bunch of, again, another, a lot of individual ones. Jacob got called out for um, breaking news with TPC. Team team got another award for Amelda breaking news. It, yeah. And you got? Yeah, I got Star Reporter of the Year. <laughs> Yeah, you you were gonna wait till I asked. Mm. I don't I like. She's, okay. <laughs> <laughs> she's just being modest. <laughs> the work you're doing, 
the work you're doing there in that newsroom is amazing. And I hope everybody will follow what's going on in the Beaumont Enterprise and will follow the uh, Port Arthur Community Action Network and will continue to stay connected with what's happening in, in Southeast Texas. Um, I wanna thank all three of you for the time that you've uh, given today to this discussion and COVID calls. And I wanna remind everybody that COVID calls takes place every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. You can find it on YouTube Live or you can keep up with COVID calls uh, using uh, my uh, uh, Twitter handle at US of Disaster and actually it has its own Twitter account now at COVID Calls. So you can find information, keep up with it. That way you can always listen to COVID Calls podcast. Just go to soundcloud.com. Tomorrow we'll be talking about face masks and politics and race with Rashawn Ray and Sharona Pearl. So we will talk to you then. Stay healthy, everybody. Thanks again for your time. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Enjoyed it.